Please take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Well, I don't know about you, but much like Craig confessed there, I'm not sure Craig was confessing for himself or all of us, but I continue to sin every single day. I'm not going to get specific. Though I'm a pastor, some might call me a man of God, the remnants of the flesh still linger in my soul and plague me. Our great enemy, Satan, is still alive and sets his sights upon me. The world is still alluring, and thus sin in my life must still be dealt with on a daily basis. I said, I don't know about you, but the reality is I do know about you. I know that you still sin as well, even as a follower of Jesus Christ. I know that I'm not the only one. I'm not alone in the daily fight against sin. And I know this, not because I'm watching you, but because I've read the book. It's clear, and we'll say more about this later, but though those of us who are in Christ, though our sins are forgiven, sin still remains. And so we're all in this together. Not one of us walks in perfect obedience to God. And so maybe a couple really practical questions for you and for me when it comes to this reality is, what does our sins, even as children of God, do to our relationship with him? And secondly, what must we do about it? We might say this is really where the rubber meets the road. As the children of God, we still continue to struggle with sin each and every day. What does it do to our relationship with God and what must we do about it? So spoiler alert, part of the answer is going to be confess your sins to the Lord. We're going to continue in this little series calling, that I'm calling Christmas Acts, A-C-T-S. Again, with the hopes of spurring us on in our personal lives of prayer. I said to you last week, thank you so much for praying for me over the last several months regarding my health, regarding my fight with cancer. And if you will, please continue to pray for that. But if you wanted to switch your prayer for me, I said, pray that I would be a man of prayer. Because I want to grow in this. And so we're doing this series on prayer, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And as we said last week, the month of January, we're going to give to prayer I'm going to give to you a 31-day guide to prayer, asking you to pray for specific things about Redeemer. We're going to gather on the five Sunday evenings of January right here to pray together. And then we're working with other churches in the month of March, Lord willing, to pray for every household in our city 
by name throughout the month of March. And you can praise God with me. We're at about 3,800 people. And that's guesstimates coming from pastors around the city. How many people do you think in your church would say yes to fasting and praying throughout the month of March for about 15 households in our city? We're at about 3,800 people, we think. We're asking God for 6,000 people, and we need them very soon. But that's our hope in the month of March, to fast and pray for 95,000 households by name over and over and over again. As we continue to think about prayer, I found this quote from Kevin DeYoung this week. It's pretty good. He said, prayer this side of heaven will always be hard and will always take discipline. But when I see it as a means of communion with God, it feels more like a get-to than a have-to. I wanted us to begin there to remind ourselves that as we encourage ourselves and spur ourselves on to more consistent, persistent, devoted, prevailing life of prayer. Prayer is communion with God. And if we can begin to see it like that, maybe for us as well, it will feel more like a get-to than a have-to. So last, last week we looked at adoration, that that's a great place to start when it comes to prayer. We said that Christmas is a great time to adore God. We looked at a number of different characters in Luke chapters 1 and 2 who, in response to the truth of Christmas, adored God, magnified God, thanked God, praised God. That when the truth of Christmas began to shine in their hearts, it shifted their soul up in adoration and thanksgiving and praise to God. Christmas is a good time, a great time to adore God. This morning, what I want to say is that Christmas is an obvious time to confess our sins. Maybe it's a funny way to put it. Why would I say an obvious time? And my answer is this, that we simply have to ask the question, why Christmas? We might know what Christmas is. It's the celebration of the incarnation of the Son of God. God the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existing before all time and before all things in perfect harmony and delight and love toward one another. Created the world. And created all things. And it was very good until it all went very wrong. And sin entered into the world. If you know the story, Genesis 1 and 2 is that perfect creation, and Genesis 3 is the entrance of sin into humanity. And you know that just as quickly as sin entered into the world, God made a promise that he was going to send Someone who would eventually fix it all. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
We know that that one who would eventually come from Eve's line, from Adam and Eve, would be the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and following. I'm going to read a handful of verses and then really zero in on one little phrase. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before, she came, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel, angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We know what Christmas is. It's the celebration of the incarnation where the Son of God became a man. But why Christmas? Why did God send his only Son into the world? D.A. Carson commenting on this little phrase, he will save his people from their sins. There was much Jewish expectation of a Messiah who would redeem Israel from Roman tyranny and even purify his people, whether by fiat or appeal, appeal to law. But there was not expectation that the Davidic Messiah would give his own life as a ransom to save his people from their sins. Now, had they been looking closer at the Old Testament texts, they might have known things like Isaiah 53. But in the day of Jesus, the expectation was Messiah who was going to come and deliver them from Rome. There was not the expectation that the Davidic Messiah would give his own life as a ransom to save his people from their sins. He goes on, the verb save can refer to deliverance from physical danger, disease, or even death. In the New Testament, it commonly refers to the comprehensive salvation inaugurated by Jesus that will be consummated at his return. Here, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, here it focuses on what is central, namely salvation from sins. In the biblical perspective, sin is the basic cause of all other calamities. This verse, therefore, orients the reader to the fundamental purpose of Jesus' coming and the essential nature of the reign he inaugurates as King Messiah, heir of David's throne. So that's how I want to put together adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and in particular confession with Christmas. Christmas is an obvious time to confess our sins because why did Jesus Christ come? To save us from our sins. The baby was born 
to die. The babe of Bethlehem was born to go to the cross of Calvary. Can't say it any better than Charles Haddon Spurgeon, right? The great preacher of the 18th century. Those little arms in the manger will one day grapple with the monster death and destroy it. Those little feet in the manger shall tread on the serpent's neck and crush his head. How awesome is that? Those little arms in the manger are going to grapple with death. He did that at the cross. Those little feet in the manger are going to tread on the serpent's neck and crush his head. He did that at the cross. This baby was born to die. Maybe you've heard of creasters. You know what a creaster is? Somebody who comes to church only on Christmas and Easter. A creaster. The Urban Dictionary is a little more crass. Quote, your typical everyday Christian who tries to act all holy twice a year when the relatives are in town. It's not a good thing to be a creaster, to only come on Christmas and Easter. But at least they're hearing the big, big story, huh? Christmas, that God has sent his son into the world. Easter you got to put Good Friday and Easter together. That son grew up and died upon a cross to pay the penalty for our sins and then rose bodily from the dead, having defeated sin, Satan, hell, and the like. The baby of Bethlehem was born to die upon the cross of Calvary to take care of and to save us from our sins. And as Carson says, in the New Testament, this word save commonly refers to the comprehensive salvation inaugurated by Jesus that will be consummated at his return. I think what he means by that is when we talk about salvation in a biblical sense from our sins, there are these three phases, if you will, of it. That whenever a person comes to put their faith in Jesus Christ, they have been saved from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is eternal condemnation, separation from God. But whenever a person comes and trusts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and new life in him, that the penalty has been taken care of by Jesus. Thus, there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We're also being saved from the power of sin. And that's taking place in the life of a believer day in and day out as we, by the power of the Spirit, say no to our sin and yes to obedience. And ultimately, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. When, when Jesus comes again, or having died when he comes and raises us anew, sin will never be on our radar again. There's the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin that Jesus 
has saved us from, is saving us from, will save us from. We can think of it as justification, sanctification, and glorification, right? For those who are in Christ Jesus, we have been justified, declared righteous. Sins forgiven, the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us, and thus we are accepted by God. Not based upon our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're justified. And we are being sanctified, made more and more like Jesus, as by the power of the Spirit we put to death our sins and say yes to obedience. And one day we will be glorified. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Past, present, future. Positional, positionally we are saved. Our sins are forgiven. The righteousness of Christ is ours. We stand forgiven, accepted, and loved. That's our position. Progressively we're working it out to be more and more like Jesus. And then ultimately, finally, it will be finished at the coming of Christ. And so Jesus has inaugurated our salvation. It'll be consummated at his return. But practically, we who know Christ find ourselves right here, right? Not here. We've, we've been saved. We've trusted Christ, and we look back to that, and we're so grateful for that, and we can't wait for this. Oh, please, can't wait for that. But now we're in this fight against the world, against the devil, against our own flesh, we still sin. We seek to put to death our sins and to trust in Christ and trust in the Spirit of God and believe his word and obey, but it is a fight still. And so we ask those two questions. Well, what, what does that do for someone who's been saved and who is progressively being sanctified as we continue to struggle with our sin, what does that do with our relationship with God? And what must we, can we do about it? The first question, what does it do to our relationship with God? I think the best answer I've ever heard goes something like this. Union secured, but communion Altered. Whenever you and I become a Christian, we are united to Jesus Christ. We are in union with Him. And all of the benefits that come with that are ours in Christ Jesus. That union is secure even as we, the children of God, fall into sin. Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even our sins. Praise God. Praise God. Because if our sins affected our union with Christ, then all of us are done. 
But praise God as you and I continue to struggle with our pride or with our anger or with our lusts or with our gluttony or with, with, with whatever it might be. Praise God that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has died for our sins. We are united to him. And that is safe and secure forevermore. But while the union can be secure, the communion can be altered. When I say communion, close relationship, intimate fellowship. The Westminster Confession of Faith said it like this. This is in the section on the Westminster Confession of Faith regarding the perseverance of the saints. That those who know Christ and who are united to Christ will never lose their salvation. They'll never ultimately fall away from faith in Jesus. They'll never give up on following him. They will persevere until the end. Here's what it says. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, Jesus, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Nevertheless, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, So there's the three great obstacles. Satan, the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, the flesh. So nevertheless they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins. And for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. God's children will persevere to the end. But as they persevere, they nevertheless may. Because of sin that remains in the flesh, or the flesh, Satan and the world, fall into sins and incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit and come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts. And the like. Kevin DeYoung, who I quoted earlier, said it like this When we sin, our union with Christ is not in jeopardy, but our communion is. 
it is possible for believers to have more or less of God's favor. Now, he's not talking about justifying favor, where we are accepted by God. He's talking about as we live out and are sanctified in the progressive Christian life. It is possible, possible for believers to have more or less of God's favor. It is possible for us to have sweet fellowship with God. And it's possible to experience his frown. Not a frown of judgment, but a for us frown that should spur us on to love and good deeds. I think all of us as parents know what this is like, right? God, our God is a good, good father. He's the best of fathers. He's a perfect father. But even as imperfect fathers, we know what it's like when our children disobey us. Are they secure in our love? Absolutely. Is the union secure? You bet. Is anything going to separate them from the love of the Father? You're crazy to think so. Secure. But might I be displeased with them? And might the intimacy and the communion and the fellowship that they enjoy in that relationship, might that be altered by their disobedience? I think we all know what that's like. So what does it do to our relationship with God when you and I sin? Our union is secure, but our communion can be altered. And so what do we do about that? Praise God for confession of sin. You and I are forgiven by God. We are secure in his love. But as we walk in our Christian life and as we sin and as the relationship with him, the communion with him, the, the joy of the fellowship with him gets disrupted because of our disobedience. What a gift it is that through confession we can come back to him. Just like any of us with a disobedient child, if when that child comes back and says, hey, daddy, I know what I did was wrong. Will you forgive me? What do we do? We shower them with the forgiveness and the intimacy and the communion. The fellowship is restored because of their confession. Turn now to 1 John chapter 1. So, if you go to the end of your Bible, the book of Revelation, and work a few books to your left, you will run into 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John chapter 1, verse 9, of course, is the most famous of verses on this truth. We'll start in verse 8. The Apostle John said, If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so John is a straight shooter and uh, he, he knows what it's like to have remaining sin and to walk 
in the alluring world of the busy devil, he knows that we are going to sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. So what do we do, John? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Greek word for confess is homologeo. Legeo is to speak. Homo is the same. It is to speak the same about our sins that God does. It's to end blame shifting and to take responsibility, right? If you've ever slowed down, which I will encourage you to do in your prayer life, to spend some time in adoration and then to carve out that bit of time and say, okay, Lord, are there any sins in my life that I need to confess today? If you've ever done that, you probably feel the, the, the remaining sin in your life coming up to make excuses for it, to minimize it, to justify it, to blame other people for it or other circumstances for it. But in confession, we're aiming not to do that. We're aiming to, to end the blame shifting and to take responsibility and to speak the same about our sin that God does. Paul Miller, wonderful book here called A Praying Life. He's not really talking about confession here, but, but I think it's a spirit of that. And uh, this is wonderful stuff. And as much as we talk about adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, as this being a practical guide for prayer, and, and indeed it is. And if you're like me and, and you need some help in your prayer life these days, ACTS is wonderful, and that's why I'm commending it to you. At the same time, prayer is simply coming to our Heavenly Father. Right? And it, it doesn't need to have these doom, 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 doom kind of things. And so maybe this is a bit of balance, but just listen to Miller here for a couple of pages. The difficulty of coming just as we are is that we are messy. And prayer makes it worse. When we slow down to pray, we are immediately confronted with how unspiritual we are with how difficult it is to concentrate on God. We don't know how bad we are until we try to be good. Nothing exposes our selfishness and spiritual powerlessness like prayer. In contrast, little children never get frozen by their selfishness. Like the disciples, they come just as they are, totally self-absorbed. They seldom get it right as parents or friends. We all know that. In fact, we are delighted most of the time to find out what is on their little hearts. We don't scold them for being self-absorbed or fearful. That's just who they are. That's certainly how Jill and I responded to Kim. Kim was their daughter with special needs. We were uncertain whether she would ever be able to walk. So when she took her first step at three years old, we didn't say, Kim, that was all very well and good, but you are two years late. You have a lot of catching up to do, including long-range walking, not to mention running, skipping, and jumping. We didn't critique how messy or late Kim was. What did we do? We screamed. We yelled. We jumped up and down. 
The family came rushing in to find out what had happened. Cameras came out, and Kim repeated her triumph. It was awesome. This isn't just a random observation about how parents respond to little children. This is the gospel, the welcoming heart of God. God also cheers when we come to him with our wobbling, unsteady prayers. Jesus does not say, Come to me, all you who have learned how to concentrate in prayer, whose minds no longer wander, and I will give you rest. No, Jesus opens up his arms to his needy children and says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. What does it feel like to be weary? You have trouble concentrating. The problems of the day are like claws in your brain. You feel pummeled by life. What does heavy laden feel like? Same thing. You have so many problems you don't even know where to start. You can't do life on your own anymore. Jesus wants you to come to him that way. Your weariness drives you to him. Don't try to get the prayer right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's what little children do. They come as they are, runny noses and all. Like the disciples, they just say what is on their minds. We know that to become a Christian, we shouldn't try to fix ourselves up. But when it comes to praying, we completely forget that. We'll sing the old gospel hymn, Just As I Am. But when it comes to praying, we don't come just as we are. We try like adults to fix ourselves up. Private, personal prayer is one of the last great bastions of legalism. In order to pray like a child, you might need to unlearn the non-personal, non-real praying that you've been taught. Just a bit more. Why is it so important to come to God just as you are? If you don't, you are artificial and unreal like the Pharisees. Rarely did they tell Jesus directly what they were thinking. Jesus accused them of being hypocrites, of being masked actors with two faces. They weren't real. Nor did they like little children. The Pharisees were indignant when the little children poured into the temple and began worshiping him. Jesus replied, quoting Psalm 8, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. The only way to come to God is by taking off any spiritual mask. The real you has to meet the real God. He is a person. And so in confession, we come messy. And we don't try to hide from God. We don't try to shift the blame or the like. We just come and speak the same about our sinful hearts as God may. And when we do, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Indeed, God is merciful to forgive our sins, but John focuses on the fact that he's faithful and righteous, probably because John has in mind that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has taken care of our sins. Jesus came and lived and died in our place and for our sins. The penalty for our sins was put upon him. And therefore, if we came before our Heavenly Father and confessed our sins to him, and he did not forgive them, 
he would be unfaithful and unjust. But he does forgive us because Christ has paid for our sins and goes on to say, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And so, just briefly, quickly, as we said last week, this Christmas season and forevermore, spend time adoring God this Christmas and forevermore. Practice the good discipline of confession of sin. Because we've all got them. God knows it. He's not surprised when you and I come to him and confess our sins. In fact, he welcomes it. He longs for it. You remember, Jesus, teach us to pray. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus knew that we, his disciples, were going to continue to struggle with sin until the day of our redemption. And he knew what would be so good for us in the midst of that is to take them to God and to speak the same about them that he would. To spend time in confession of our sins. Roland read it earlier. But just to close on Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and who, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with a fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Let's pray. Father, indeed, part of prayer is a looking up in adoration and praise for the greatness and the glory of our God. You are worthy of all of our worship, all of our adoration, all of our praise, every high and lofty thought we can imagine about you. You are worthy of it. And also in prayer, a time for looking inward at the ways, maybe the many ways that we have fallen short of the glory of God. Maybe in the things that we have 
thought about. Maybe in the words that we have spoken. Maybe in the way we have responded to a spouse or to a coworker or to a circumstance. Maybe even the ways we feel about some things. Lord, we, we know that sin shows up in our lives in all those ways. In our thoughts, in our feelings, in our words, in our actions. We're so grateful that because of the gospel, we are secure. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our union with Christ is safe. But I think we've all experienced um, how our sweet fellowship and communion with you can be disrupted because of our disobedience. Thank you for the gift of confession that you are inclined to hear us as we humble ourselves and come to you with our sins to confess them to you. Lord, teach us how to do this. Teach us not to blame others, our circumstances. Teach us not to minimize our sins or to justify them, but to come clean with them before you. And load our thoughts as well with your great mercy through the gospel of your son, Jesus. And, and in prayer to find again the peace and the comfort and the joy of fellowship with you. We bless you in Christ's name. Amen.